This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Did you know that your unique background of life and leadership experiences prepares you for our complex world of executive leadership decisions? Today's guest has multiple lenses through which to view leadership opportunities and dilemmas and to provide value to his C-suite clients. Pat D'Amico is the founder and CEO of About Face Development, and he is a senior performance consultant for Matrix Achievement Group. With more than 30 years experience in the Fortune 500 medical device and pharmaceutical industries, he's worked for Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic, and startups. Pat's roles have included sales, commercial operations, recruiting, marketing, and training. As a sales manager, Pat was a four-time President's Club winner. His specialty is designing and launching new departments, even within large established organizations. Pat's leadership experience also includes serving as both an enlisted soldier and a commissioned officer of the U.S. Army. After his commissioning as an officer, he served overseas, leading soldiers in Panama, Cuba, and the Middle East. He received numerous recognitions for his leadership in both combat and humanitarian operations. With strategic roles spanning from Fortune 50 companies to startups, Pat's cross-functional and cross-business experience provides him a unique perspective on what makes individuals and organizations commercially successful. Focused on leadership and management development, he now serves as an executive coach to C-suite leaders. Pat holds an MS in education, specifically in instructional design, a BA in world politics, and an executive coaching certification from the UC Berkeley Executive Education and Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute. He is a frequent speaker and author on topics related to learning and development and leadership and is a member of the Entrepreneur Leadership Council. Pat, welcome to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thanks, Dr. Karen. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for that amazing introduction. Who's that guy? (laughs) Who's that guy? We're going to find out a little (laughs) bit about that guy today. Pat, I'm so delighted to have you here. And as I said, you have multiple lenses through which you look at leadership. And I want to start with your corporate lens and ask you about your career in the pharmaceutical and medical device industries. Tell us a little bit about some of the significant roles you've had, and most importantly, the impact that you've had in the organizations where you served. Well, thanks, Dr. Karen, and, and you did such a wonderful job of, of the introduction, so I appreciate that. You know, I've had a pretty non-traditional, I think, career, uh, having spent 30 years in the in the medical device and, and pharmaceutical, or what we refer to as the life sciences area. The reality is that typically you'll see folks either do a, in the commercial space, do a sales sales leadership path maybe do a little bit in marketing maybe do something in sales training and i've really had a career that's afforded me the opportunity to have many different roles so i've spent quite a bit of time in the area of sales operations so pretty early in my career as a director of sales operations that was a new department which is another really keystone of of my career which has been super fortunate over half of my roles have been newly created so i've had an opportunity to build these new departments within organizations so early on i built a a sales operations department at j and j for one of the medical device companies when we transitioned and and expanded the uh, the organization so you know that was a really fun role to really bring on new younger experienced folks to build that department so that that's one role that 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 i recall back to 
probably one of my most fortunate was I received a call also early in my career that Johnson & Johnson at the time had centralized recruiting for all functions except for sales. And so someone reached out to me and said, hey, look, we're looking to maybe try this out and centralize recruiting for sales in the US. Would you be interested? We'll give you money for six months. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, you're gonna have to find another job in J&J. So I was up to the challenge. And so uh, that was a great experience. So formed this sales recruiting department centralized for J&J in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And we, uh, we supplied candidates for all three sectors. So pharmaceutical device, as well as consumer. So it was a really interesting role to build a new department, recruiters all over the country. We had initially lost a lot of money in our, I always like to say we lost a million dollars in our first year, but became profitable in year two. So that was a positive. Uh, so that was an interesting role. Also, when I left J&J, and, and my reason for leaving J&J was to take a job as a VP of commercial operations for a startup. And that was one of the roles in my career that I really learned the most about the corporate environment. Because when you work for a startup, you wear a lot of different hats. So I was responsible for meetings and conventions, for training, for corporate accounts. Uh, so that was a role that really, I think, significantly expanded my experience in the sector. And then eventually that organization was purchased by Medtronic. And I spent my last eight years there. Primarily at that point in my career, I had really begun to focus solely on learning and development. So I originally went over, transitioned the startup into the organization, and then during a restructuring at Medtronic where they took all of the uh, operating companies within the cardiovascular group, put them into one, and I assumed, again, a new role there, uh, which had not existed, where we were doing responsible for providing skills training to North, South, and Central America. So pretty big job really interesting, very, very satisfying because again, it was new. So I was able to sort of set things up, do some trial and error, see what worked and expand the group. So those are just a, a few examples over the, over the last 30 years. Well, thank you for describing that journey over the last 30 years. Now, I want to unpack a few of the items that you talked about. We said earlier that one of your sort of secret powers, if you will, or superpowers is starting new operations within, let's say, a bigger rubric or operation. And you described one where if it didn't work, you'd have to find a new job. So tell us a little bit, Pat, about what what are the what's important in doing a startup and particularly in an already existing corporate business? What are some of the skills you have to have? What do you have to do? What do you have to learn to be successful? Now, that's a great question I hadn't thought about. And I, the first thing that comes to mind, Dr. Karen, is a term that J&J used to use, which I've, I've continued to use, which is organizational savvy. Political astuteness is also the same, you know, means the same thing and is often used. And it's really understanding how to maneuver within a large corporate organization like a Johnson & Johnson. So a lot of processes were established. There was a lot of things that were being done. And so you're you're trying to start a department, which more or less is moving work, right? That that was being done somehow else and moving it within. And one of the challenges is with this particular role was recruiting and finding candidates was being done externally. So folks, sales managers were going to external sources to identify candidates. So the first thing is you really have to convince these folks that you can provide the types of candidates the quality of candidates that they're looking for. And so understanding the market, doing enough research to really ascertain, okay, where where do we find these great candidates? And how are our competition, which was external recruiters doing that? And it also resulted in a lot of partnerships with external uh, recruiters as well. So can we negotiate contracts that are more favorable than what we're currently getting so that we can support the department financially, but also you know, meet the needs of the hiring managers. So those were some of the things in that particular role that was interesting. Now, one of the funny parts of that is, you know, I had li was living in the South at the time where I had lived for a long time. I was originally from the North and I had been living in the South for years. And I was kind of looking to get back to, you know, a little closer to home. And that was part of this, this decision was they came to me and said, look, we'll move you. And at least if this doesn't work, you could try to find another job up here because you'll already be located back in the north. So that was that was part of the reason that that I took the role as well, or, or that it seemed interesting. But uh, but yeah, back to your original question. I think that understanding how to maneuver within the organization, who are the folks with influence, how do you get early wins 
with folks that have influence, which I think applies in so many different areas. I think this is a really huge uh, conversation, by the way, and an important one. The whole idea about organizational politics and the whole notion of influence and part of influence, and you mentioned it, is really understanding what that partner or stakeholder is really looking for and what they want, and then being able to show them how you can deliver on that. So say a little bit more about what does it take to really influence people and to be a good partner? So that's a great question because in my role now as a consultant, I I often will say folks come to me and they'll tell me what they think the gap is. And about 50% of the time they're right. And it's probably pretty accurate. So the first thing is you want to understand from those stakeholders, what do you think your concerns are and what is it you're trying to accomplish? But then really the expertise that you bring, at least for me as a consultant, right? When the expertise that I bring is my ability to dig in, to ask the right questions, talk to the right people, talk to the influencers and find out, okay, what are the actual gaps? And usually there's some connection to what you're initially hearing, but Inevitably, you need to be able to come back and you need to be able to communicate in a way that makes them feel comfortable that, yes, what you shared with me as some of your concerns and your goals are valid and here's how we're going to try to meet that, while at the same time also understanding the other things that you uncovered and ensuring that those are included as well. So you do address the larger problem, which what they shared with you initially may only be a piece of. Yeah, that's really important. What you're talking about right now, the importance of questions, the importance of going deeper to get to the discovery and so that they can see, oh, that's the value add of bringing Pat into the picture because we're going to see what we didn't see before. We already know what we know. And there's more we need to know, if you will. So that's what I hear you talking about, Pat. Yes, raise a really good point here, which is that, you know, in my role as a consultant, and I think for all of us when we're, we're looking at this, right, what's the expertise we bring? And we need to be very aware of what that expertise is. And, and you also said asking questions. I'm a big proponent when I'm facilitating groups, they, they get really tired of that. I always say, what's that three-letter word? You know, ask. Ask is that three-letter word. You know, great leaders, great consultants speak half as much as as they allow other people to. They ask a lot of questions. They try to determine and try to understand whether it's their customers' needs, their you know whether that's internal or external. So really understanding what is it that they're trying to get at and making sure you understand what they're hoping to accomplish. You just can't be successful without understanding their need. And then really making sure you're you're satisfying that need. That's phenomenal. And so let me ask this. When you think about the whole of your corporate experience, and we're still talking about that, what are some additional key lessons that you learned from your corporate life that you now apply to your consulting world? And of course, one of them is how to ask these questions, how to develop the relationships and communicate with people, listen, and so on. What else would you say you learned in corporate America that you use today? All organizations have their demons. All organizations, and they all think that they're the ones that have them. (laughs) So I think that one of the most valuable things when you're working with corporations is to help them understand they're not the only ones facing the challenges they're facing. Very often they think that's the case when the reality is that's very seldom if ever the case, right? That the challenges are are common and they're common at different points in time, right? The challenges that I was facing in the corporate environment 20 years ago or 15 years ago, you know, are slightly different than some of the challenges we're facing today. But the challenges being faced today are also being faced by, by everyone. And that once you understand that and once you have experience with helping address those you know, you become extremely valuable to organizations. I think you just mentioned it, right? I mean, one of the things I look at is, I look at it and and think to myself, if I'm if an organization is facing a challenge, and with the work I do, the chances are I've helped other organizations address the same challenges. So there are answers out there. They're not esoteric. They're not, oh my gosh, we're never going to find it. The answers are out there. I think the key is you have to be working with, 
either internally or externally, the folks that have those answers. Well, I love that because, again, going back to the whole notion of multiple lenses, because you're out there in multiple places, you're bringing expertise and lenses from multiple places that can help your clients as well. And so while we're talking about the sorts of challenges that organizations are facing, let me ask this. What do you think are some of the primary issues that are facing organizations today and particularly some of the reasons maybe for some competencies and leadership that are lacking right now. So how would you talk about that? I really believe one of the biggest leadership challenges today is turnover because I think turnover, undesirable, let's be clear, undesirable turnover, losing people you don't want to lose is absolutely the result of poor leadership and management competency. We know this to be true, right? There's plenty of research. There's no doubts on on that topic. And so I think organizations need to be honest with themselves and ask themselves, what does their leadership competency look like? And how is it negatively impacting the organization? Because today we're straight, there is a war for talent that is real. And in keeping folks is becoming one of the biggest challenges they face. And I think we, Dr. Karen, we've lived through that sort of time period where we thought giving our employees more perks would keep them. And I and I think we've learned that that's not the case, right? I think we're past that now. So we're back to, in my opinion, the original question, which is why do we lose good people? And I think it's because of poor leadership. And I think, again, there's, there's tons of research to show us that that's the case. Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I know that you have some particular insights about what the literature actually shows on this very topic of why people leave and how that literature and information can inform the leadership development processes that people use in their company. So what are some examples of what does poor leadership look like and how can people fix it? Yeah, well, first on the, on the data, because I think there's an interesting thing, change that's happened recently. So post the Industrial Revolution, let's be honest, during the Industrial Revolution, people left jobs for their own personal safety, right? I mean, my grandparents worked at the steel plant and, you know, they, they, they worried about their physical safety. But after that, the number one reason people have left jobs is, is their immediate manager. That's always been the case. In fact, it's been so much the case that it's never even been worth, worth talking about the number two reason. However, about five or six years ago, we started to see the number two reason moving up, not going to overtake number one, but the number two reason people leave jobs is a lack of development. And I think those two go hand in hand, right? If you are not developing your leaders, then you're going to lose good people. And ironically, not developing people is the second most common reason that folks are leaving organizations. So I think you have to look at that and understand from a data perspective. Let's admit, if we have good people leave, we're losing them typically not because we're not paying them enough, not because we're not giving them enough perks. We're losing them because their immediate manager that they work for does not understand them, does not understand their motivations, does not understand what gets them out of bed every morning and what makes them want to go do that job. And that's really the biggest thing, in my opinion, that 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 just we have to address because there's such an incredible lack of leadership and management development across all sectors. Doesn't matter. I work primarily in life sciences, but really it's impacting everyone. Uh, it's pretty incredible how much it lacks in organizations. That's really a very good point. And one of the things that I've observed is that with the younger generations that are in the workplace today, particularly those who are no longer, not the baby boomers, this expectation for development is particularly high and particularly strong. And when it's there, it's an almost an inoculation, if you will, against those people jumping ship prematurely. It is. And, and here's a question for you. Do you sometimes get the impression in organizations that the leadership thinks when they hear lack of development, that they think that people want to get promoted too fast? Have you heard that? I have heard that. And I think they are missing a whole segment of possibilities in between. It's, it's not the promotion per se. It's the building blocks that lead up to the promotion. I wholeheartedly agree when, when, because a lot of times when I share the, the, I share that answer of, you know, a lack of development right away, someone or people in the room will say, oh, they want to get promoted too quick. No, no. 
I'm not going to say that may not be a separate challenge, but it is not one and the same with wanting to be developed, right? And so okay. you need to have these processes in place. So I, I was wondering if you'd heard the same thing because it, it always blows my mind. And I'm like, no, 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 those are two very different things. And when organizations confuse that, the promotion, if it comes too early, can also be a barrier because the person may not feel ready for it. They may feel like they don't have support. They don't have the development that they need to be to show up well in the promotion. So the development piece is crucial even to success in the promotion is what I find. And I will tell you that there, there's an epidemic. Not that this is new, because I've been in 30 years, I've been seeing it for 30 we, we just have such a habit, organizations do, of promoting people before they're, I mean, to say they're not ready is a complete understatement, right? I mean, the reality is, well, you've been a good individual contributor, so here you go. We're going to promote you, figure it out, ask some peers. And I just, you know, to your point, it really sets people up for failure. You have to, you know, you want them to be prepared enough to be marginally competent and marginally confident in their skills to actually lead others. But we just, you know, I just see so little of it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely an opportunity in the workplace so that companies can find themselves in the position where they are a preferred employer because they're providing what others don't provide. So I do think you're onto something when you talk about developing people in the workplace. So let me change gears a little bit, and I want to dial back to your military experience and the time that you were in the Army. Tell us a little bit about what you did there, the impact you had in the Army, and what you learned from that. Well, the, the, the military really changed my life, Dr. Karen. I was not a great academic high school student, although I had had some leadership opportunity. And so when I was getting ready to go to college and my parents didn't have any money to send me and I didn't have grades to pay for it. The army looked like, you know, was a great avenue for me to fund college. So I enlisted in the army and then was was given a two-year scholarship and I went to Valley Forge Military Academy and it was there that my whole life really changed. I, I matured, but most importantly, I was given an opportunity to lead in my second year there, a company of around 140 young men at the time. It wasn't co-ed. Fortunately, it is now. I had an opportunity to lead 140 young men and really learn a lot, make a lot of mistakes. But having that opportunity at that young an age really gave me exposure to myself and what I really enjoyed helping other people succeed, helping other people develop their leadership at the same time I was developing my own. I was young, I was 17, 18 years old, or 18 years old at the time. But that really had an impact on me. And it was really that experience that kind of led to my going on active duty in the Army. Uh, I served in Panama after the invasion there and did law enforcement support for Panama City, which was really interesting work. And then went to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I also did some humanitarian missions uh, for the Haitian migrants. I was stationed in Cuba for a while. So that entire experience from a leadership perspective, what it really showed me was, and, and I think we may get into this, and, and I think because we, I think we're missing this today, is that you were responsible, I was responsible for the whole person. It wasn't just their life at work, which, you know, we never referred to it as work. So how they were performing their duties was my responsibility to coach them on. If they bounced a check at the post exchange, I got a phone call to go sit down with them and maybe their spouse. If they were having personal issues, it wasn't unusual for me to go over and, and talk and see. It was this holistic approach to your employees and understanding that work was only a part of it, but understanding that whole human was really critical. And I think it's something we've lost now. And I'm a big proponent of it, right? Understanding what really motivates this person in their life. Because don't tell me it's money, because I can almost guarantee you it's not. Every individual is motivated by different things. And, and understanding that at the outset helps you get not every, everything out of them for work, but helps you as a leader ensure you're giving them and finding ways to give them what it is that satisfies their needs. You know, you're talking about a couple of things I think are really important. You're talking about what motivates people, which we were also talking about from your corporate experience and what you learned there. In addition, you're also talking about 
what other factors influence a person and their success at work and their choices. So when I think about the military, it took a while for the military to realize that understanding what was of interest to the spouse affected the soldier as an example. So when you unpack this part about what are those other influences, think about coming out of this post-pandemic time period that we're in where people are facing all kinds of challenges and issues. They may have close relatives who are ill. People may be dying. All kinds of things may be going on. What does that workplace need to think about in today's time that's beyond just the day-to-day work that is more holistic about people? I think it starts with with empathy, right? I, I think that understanding having your leaders in your organization, those that lead the organization, understand the importance of empathy, appreciating what that person is going through or been through. And the pandemic's a great great example. Like we, we could all probably give numerous examples, both work and frankly, in our own personal lives, right? We all sort of grappled with and maybe reacted to the pandemic differently and had different, you know, were impacted by it differently. So understanding what folks are dealing with, what their concerns are, how it changed their lives, right? I think I think the easy one is to look and go, everybody wants to work at home now. And, and that let's not, the reality is that's a challenge everybody's facing, right? I mean, you know, I work with a lot of commercial organizations who have salespeople. Well, think about that a second. So we've gone from a place where the pandemic now results in most people preferring to work remotely all the time. And I'm working with organizations who essentially need to find people willing to work outside the home all the time, right? Maybe not in an office, right? We tend to think, well, office or home. There's a whole other area of people working out there who actually have to go places and meet with people every day. And at the same time, because of pandemic, that's gotten a little bit tougher to see folks. So understanding what motivates individuals and how you can satisfy their needs, right? Because somebody may believe, well, I just, you know, I just, I want to be at home and I, I want to work remotely and I don't want to be in an office. Well, what is it about being at home that you really enjoy is it simply the flexibility well you know we can offer you that same flexibility it's it's not an all or nothing and i think right now we're struggling a little bit with this notion of well they're you know people just don't want to go to the office no let's understand what it is they enjoy about it. and maybe it's the flexibility maybe it's the fear right maybe some people are actually still a little apprehensive some folks just got very used to being alone they need a little bit of encouragement to go back. So there's so many different things that play in here. And and I I always hate the discussions of like, it's 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 this or this or all or nothing. It's never all or nothing. Every, life is all about compromise. And as leaders of this organization, we, to be successful, we absolutely have to. We compromise with our customers. We, we need to compromise with our employees. And maybe one word I sometimes use is really about finding the solution that's not obvious, where really there's a win-win that's possible both for the organization and also for the employee. And I'm thinking back to your experience with J&J when it's like, okay, you're in the South and you're working on this new project and it's with the possibility that you could move back up North where you want to be. That was paying attention to something that was important to you. And what you're saying is, the organizations need to listen a little more deeply to find out what their employees really want. What is it about working from home that's the real draw? And then maybe in these other solutions, they can add that element in. It ebbs and flows, right? In in the in the early 90s, when I first entered the industry, it was a tough job market for the job seeker, right? Corporations were doing really well. They had the pick of the litter. And I remember when I joined J&J and I went through the leadership development program, I remember them saying to me, now, look, here's the deal. Your first offer for promotion, you can say no to, but you can't say no to your second. And the message was that first location, you better really not want to go there because wherever the second location is, you're going. And I remember that sticking with me thinking, wow, you, you don't have any idea where that second location is going to be if you say no. We used to say at Jane, you had to be blindly relocatable. That was the term we used. You had to be, you had to be, if you wanted to get promoted, you had to be blindly relocatable. And I think we abused that to a significant extent. And I think we learned that years later when the market became a 
job seekers market and people are like, well, wait a minute. No, I don't think I'm going to go there or no, I don't want to go there. You know, I need a better, I, you know, I need a better location. So I think you have to be fair. It's a give and a take. Again, it's a compromise. I was in the South. I was ready to get promoted and I assumed I would have the ability to go kind of anywhere that was open. And my boss came to me and said, well, here are your four potential places you're going to end up. And I'm like, that's it. That, that, those are that, that's, those are my choices. So, uh, so it worked out, but I think we have to be conscious of, I often say, I think we abused employees then and what goes around comes around. <laughs> well, and I think what the option is now, and this is what you're talking about is to really be in more partnership, even with the employees to talk about a greater panoply of possibilities and options that are out there so that they're part of the decision-making equation at a greater level. And therefore they feel like, okay, I'm going to New Jersey and that's where I want to be, you know, as opposed to, uh, I, no, I did not want to be in South Africa today, you know, wherever. Right. I mean, right. You, again, you, you, you want both parties to feel good. Now you mentioned that, that, that you've seen a lot of this. I think you said something interesting, which is, you know, I, I don't, you didn't use the word unique, but, but other options. What, what have you, have you seen any that have been unique in the standpoint of how to meet a, an employee's need? Well, I think it's exactly the optics you've been talking about is to have in your mind that you want to meet the employee's needs so that the corporation benefits, the employee benefits, where in the Venn diagram do the circles overlap in terms of what motivates them, what's meaningful to them in terms of the work that they do and how they are showing up and finding the sweet spot that works for the whole system. So I have seen companies really create powerful examples of the future that they didn't come to the table with originally and that the employee didn't come to the table with originally, but it's because they engaged each other, they talked about it, and they understood what the other needed. They created what I call the third solution, which was something that was a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. So for sure, I think your notion of thinking of the employee in a holistic way is very relevant in today's times. So when uh, going back, when you asked me the question of, of the military, that that's the great, one of the greatest things I picked up when I moved into the corporate sector is an understanding that yes, this person is an employee, but they're a human being. And there's a lot of other things playing into what's motivating them. And so when, it, when a, an employee is not performing, to me, it's never a question of bringing them in and kind of hammering them and reminding them of what they already know. Oh, your performance is done. That, that is, not, you know, if they've been a good performer, the question is what, what's going on? What's happening with you? What can I help with? What are the barriers, right? I often tell leaders, you know, if you want your people to succeed, even your top performers, ask them the question, what barriers can I remove for you? What is getting in your way? Because the, because the reality is I can't do their job but I need them to do their job for me to be successful as a leader. So what sometimes the best thing I can do is help them, you know, remove things that are, that are preventing them from being successful. So. I love two things you just said right now. One is be curious about what the person's experience is and what's going on. And then number two, figure out how you can facilitate their success. And that might mean removing something that's an impediment. That's really powerful in terms of how to be more holistic in thinking about the employee as a whole person and not just what I would call an interchangeable cog in a wheel. And I think that kind of thinking is what has really um, adversely affected some employees employers in today's world. I would agree. And on that first topic, because I see this so often, when leaders assume, if you take two employees, right, one here and one here, and they look the same on paper, right? Let's say they're same years of experience in the industry. They've generally had the same roles. We tend to look at them. Many leaders tend to look at them and assume, well, okay, when I when I give a task to the team, those two are going to have the same experience and know how to do that. And and nothing could be further from the truth, right? I mean, you go into, you know, concepts like situational leadership, which which I do like. It's a little complicated, I think, at, at the at the rubber hits the road. But what I do like to tell people is, you know, ask folks when you assign a task, you need to ask into each individual, what's your experience with this task because it's not going to line up like you think it will. Well, those that have X amount of experience are both going to, you know, those two people are going to 
they're going to have the same. Very unlikely it doesn't happen. As an example, I was I was working with two two vice presidents of sales. On paper, they looked somewhat identical, right? Been in the industry about the same time, been in the same type of roles, and it was coming to around that time of the year where realignments of this sales force were happening. And so I spoke to the first one and she was, you know, it was a very brief discussion. She said, well, I've got to go through realignment. We're doing this, we're doing that, everything. Very clear to me that she knew exactly what, what was going on. Well, I get on the phone to coach the other one and I wrongly was just under the assumption based on the conversation I'd had with the other leader a couple days before and they were similar that he would have the same experience. And and we reached a point during the discussion where I sent something and I said to him, I said, I, I'm, I'm sensing you're a little apprehensive about this realignment. At that point, opened up and he goes, you know, I, I the reality is I, I've never been responsible for a realignment. In my mind, Dr. Karen, I'm like, how is that possible? How did they get to this break? I mean, you know, at much lower levels. I said, you know, that's very interesting. Normally, I would have expected, and he kind of went through an explanation. Well, I, you know, I've had this role, and I missed it here, and I missed it here. And it let me know that the way I coached those two people was very different. In one case, the first one, I'm just supporting her, right? Is there anything, you know, that you're challenged with? Can we talk about? With the second one, I sort of had to go back to, okay, let's talk about how this process works and what your responsibilities are. Now, normally as a coach, I'm trying to get them to come up with the ideas, but the reality is, I said, I go, I have to take my my coach hat off. Is that okay? I, you know, become an advisor here. Here are the things you need to be thinking about. Here are the things to expect. But it's a long-winded way of getting back to two people with the same background had very different experiences with the task being assigned. So you can't assume that those two people are, are going to know exactly what to do in that circumstance. Oh, I love those examples. Thank you for giving the specific examples. And it really demonstrates why the curiosity and the question asking and the real appreciation for each individual journey and looking at them as whole people helps to figure out what to do next and mm -hmm. how to facilitate their continued success. I love the fact that you said sometimes you may be the coach that's bringing it out of them and other times you have to be the advisor. You're the consultant that says, here's how this goes. Here's what's next. I think we have to do both if we really are going to serve our clients in the best way. So I really appreciate you mentioning those two examples as an illustration of what you're talking about. I'm a big proponent of, as, as an executive coach at Berkeley and my certification there, I'm a big big proponent of sort of their model, which is, you know, the, the, the types of roles you play as a leader. And, and one role is, is a director. That's where you're dealing with an employee who's never done this before, right? And you're going to have to tell them exactly what, what they need to do, right? Then the next one is an advisor, what I just described, right? Maybe they have some experience, maybe they have an idea or two, but you're probably going to be trying to feed them you probably have to feed them the right answer, right? And then the third role is the coach where they've hopefully got the experience. Now you're asking them to call on their experience and come up with the best course of action on their own. And then the last is supporter, which is my example, right? Somebody who's done it, they know what they expected of them. And you could say in a perfect world that for each task, people will move through those four, right? At first, you tell them how to do it. The second time, maybe they have some ideas, but they don't know exactly. The third time, maybe they can figure it out. And the fourth time, you're just there for them. So, but the point being, you never know until you ask, what's your experience with this task? What's your confidence with this task? Those are the two questions I always like to ask. Yes, and I love this because it really does harken back to the Hersey Blanchard situational leadership model because somebody may come into a situation where they have the experience at a high level or they may not. And so they may start with you, you know, further down the path on the subject because of their past experience or they may need to start at the beginning. And our whole task is to figure out how to be with them where they really are, not where we want to be or where we might right. want to start. So again, it's the, the flexibility of the consultant. It's the flexibility of the advisor to really understand those dynamics and provide the right services. So yeah, great example. Thanks, Pat, for sharing that. You know, so far, Pat, we've been talking a lot about 
what has made you successful over the years. And we know that we learn a lot also from mistakes. And so tell us a little bit about in your own uh, journey, what's been your biggest mistake? Wow. Well, I, I am a huge proponent of, I mean, human nature and human and research in, in, into, into human beings. We know that we, we learn more from our mistakes than our successes, right? We learn more from our failures. We take them more to heart. They're more impactful. You know, I make no bones about the greatest mistake I ever made. I was, I was 22 years old and we were leaving, uh, after the invasion, after, after Iraq invaded Kuwait, and we were leaving to go over to deploy to the Middle East. Now, I had taken this platoon already to Panama, so I was feeling pretty confident in their readiness. They had performed really well in Panama, so I was pretty confident. But that morning, Dr. Karen, we're, we're standing out there. It was, was in October. It was a cool morning in Virginia. I had my entire platoon in front of me, and, and behind them were all of their families, all right? So again, their wives, their mothers, their children, fathers were back there. And as I would have normally done, I, I walked to the back of the platoon. We were just about to leave. And I walked to the back of my platoon and I just said to all of them, you know, please write. That means a lot to them. I'll, you know, you know, try to make sure they can write back, back as often as possible. And, and, and Dr. Karen, as I'm talking, and in that moment, I said the following, I promise to bring your sons and fathers home alive. And I couldn't believe those words had left my mouth. I couldn't believe I just made a promise that I had no way to guarantee I could keep. And I lived with that promise for six months every day, knowing that I had made this promise. And the real moment for me was the day the ceasefire was called, we're sitting in a tent and we have the little radio hanging from the, the pole in, in, in the tent. Uh, with Armed Forces Radio, and they make an announcement saying a ceasefire has been called. And we realize, and in that moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, I this promise I shouldn't have made, I'm going to be able to keep. And within seconds, the ground shook. There was an explosion inside our camp. And I grabbed my helmet and my rifle, and as I'm running out the door, I'm like, I, I can't believe this is happening right now. Now, fortunately, there were a few casualties in our company or in our battalion, but not in my my particular platoon. And, and here's the truth, Dr. Karen. I made that promise partially because I thought it would give some solace to, you know, to these civilians, to the, to the parents, to the kids, to the wives, because I had taken them and brought them back safely from our last deployment. But if I'm being honest with you, I did it largely out of ego. I had had so much success as a leader at such a young age in my life that I had this level of confidence that really wasn't warranted. And there was a lot of what went in that. And, I'm, and, I, and I'll admit that today, that I was overconfident as a leader. It taught me a lot. I learned from that never, never make a promise to an employee or to anyone. But, but you know, I always think about this related. Never make a promise that you're not 100% sure you can keep. You can say, I'm going to do my best to do this. I'm going to do my best to deliver this. I have your best interests in mind, and I'm, I'm going to try to match, you know, meet that. But don't ever say, I'll do it, or I guarantee it'll happen. That's the biggest mistake I've ever made, no doubt. Wow. And thankfully, you ended up being able to honor that in spite of the error. Or the I, I did, and I was grateful and told myself, I'll never do that again. One of those yeah. things of like, if you just get me out of this, right, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'm not going to make that mistake again. Oh, yeah, it's so powerful. And, you know, I think it's really interesting what you said about how you can promise that you will do your best. You can promise things that you have control over. Yes. And in a war situation, there are factors over which no individual or company or, you know, platoon battalion or anybody has control over there are always those other factors and so you can't speak about the unexpected that you don't know is going to happen so I, that's a very powerful example if you were standing there with your platoon now given what you've learned and you were addressing those families what would you say today oh gosh today i would say Knowing what I know now, I, I, I love those men. I really still do. You know, I would probably tell their families, you know what? 
these men are as close as brothers to me and know that I will do everything I possibly can for them and know that we will do everything possible for each other to keep ourselves safe. That's what I would say today. That's beautiful because just knowing as a leader that you have that commitment is reassuring to a family member. In other words, you're not going in the war saying, oh, well, these guys are expendable. I don't, uh, I'm probably going to lose 10, 15, 20%. And I don't care. You know, <laughs> that would be a different speech than to say they're like brothers to me. That has meaning. You know, that has real significant meaning to someone who's a family member and who's listening. You know, Pat, you mentioned ego and that the reason you said this was because of ego. We know in the corporate environment, there are a lot of leaders who show up with this kind of ego as well. And what would you say to that leader? And especially having gone through this and having to live kind of in fear (laughs) in hopes that you didn't lose any guys, what would you say to them about how they might need to walk in order to avoid that, I'll say, temptation to be ego-driven? Yeah, well, I don't make any pull any punches, Dr. Karen, as a consultant. I, I, you know, maybe it's I've gotten older. Maybe it's just the being raised in the military environment. I'm never shy about sharing with folks. I'm, I'm very upfront. I will, I believe in telling individuals what they do well, but I will not hold back if there is an area that needs to be addressed. And what I generally share with folks is an ego driven leader can have success for a short time. But over the long term, it's the employee's belief that you really care about them genuinely that's going to make them perform and make you successful. And and this ties back for me, if I may, my first real, other than my father, who was my lifelong role model, my first role model work-wise was a gentleman by the name of Sergeant Major George Deedy. He actually passed away a couple of years ago. He was at Valley Forge Military Academy, and he taught me what I have held as the most important leadership lessons. Now, maybe it was because they were the early ones, but his number three that I learned from him really has driven my entire career. The first two are pretty simple. First one was don't mess with people's pay. Of course, he didn't use the word mess because it was the old army, but we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> paraphrase, right? You know, he used to say, you know, fix people's pay. If there's a pay problem, fix it yesterday. Meaning, look, people work for money and you got to get that taken care of. His second was when people are off, let them be off, Right. Make sure they know that they don't have to be doing work while they're, you know, people need time off. They need time to decompress. But the third one, Dr. Karen, for me is the most important one, which is if your employees truly believe you care about them and are looking out for their best interest, they will perform for you. And so the challenge with ego-driven leaders is if they can't ever get there, then I think that's real challenge. And I believe many of them, Many who are ego-driven their whole careers, right, they start that way, right? There's not that concern. The thought is, if I make myself look good, if I drive people, you know, if I drive people to the last inch of energy that they have, that's going to give me the results I need to get promoted. And I tell young leaders, especially prospective leaders, one of the first things I say to them is, if you get the greatest satisfaction out of being the one on stage, the one being recognized, the one hearing your name called, leadership may not be right for you right now and maybe never, but you've got to evaluate that. You have to get more jazz. You have to be more jazzed out of watching others succeed. What you've helped them grow, right? Almost like a parent does, right? Some people are not cut out to be parents. Not everyone is cut out to be a leader. So when I see leaders with an ego, I usually let them know that in my experience, ego-driven leaders can only be successful for a short time. The truth is people know if you really care or you don't. And if you don't really care, you're not going to have success for much, you know, for a very long time. That is so powerful. Yes. And it's so true. And I think that for leaders to think about their real job, which is facilitating the development and the leadership of other people, that's really the key. And as you do that, you will be successful along the way. So it's all a matter of emphasis and, and what you focus on. And so it's good that you say short term, because short term can be a long time, but it's not for the long term. And people they won't like working for you. And there's more they could do, which they won't do when you're such an ego-driven 
leader. So thank you for saying that and talking about a tough topic that people don't always uh, bring up. If I may, one other way I get at this sometimes if um, if I'm looking for a roundabout way is I will ask a leader some specific questions about some of their employees. Hey, tell me about what do you know about their motivations? What motivates them? What do you know about what they like to do in their free time? My experiences with ego-driven leaders, they don't have a lot of experience. And then I can sort of back into the conversation and say, you know, if, if you don't understand that about that employee, how do you expect to motivate them to perform for you, right? Yes, they have a job to do. And yes, you're paying for their job. You're paying them to do the job of the organization is. But without knowing what motivates them, how are you ever going to motivate them, right? So, Yeah. It's an eye-opener for some people. Or perhaps even another way of thinking about it is if you know what motivates them is how can you create the conditions in the corporation where they can be self-motivated and then do what they really want to do, which is also what benefits the company. And so I think that also puts the ball in the employee's court to some extent and the corporation is facilitating, you know, the success and the development of that along the way. So, Pat, in the time we have remaining, and one other subject that I really want to get to, we might have to do a Cliff Notes version, but I'd really like to know more about your backstory and your family of origin and your upbringing and what you learned there that informs how you lead today as well. Well, I was really fortunate, Dr. Karen. I, I had, my parents were wonderful. My father has passed, devastating to me, uh, a number of, a handful of years ago. Mother still alive and very, very, uh, very healthy. So, so God bless her. But, you know, I grew up in a very tight-knit Italian community, right, which was an unusual, right? I mean, yeah, everybody I knew in the neighborhood was Italian. And our community really centered around, um, you know, the Catholic Church. I was raised Roman Catholic. And so that combination of sort of the family heritage of my parents were first-generation Americans, as well as the combination of the social circle that the church provided really gave me a basis for um, uh, for community, for an incredible community. I, I grew up in an incredible community, I guess is what I would say. And when you did something wrong, everybody knew because, you know, it didn't matter whose parent it was, they were going to they were going to reprimand you and your parents were going to find out. And so I feel really fortunate because that sense of community that I gained there I think carried forward for me as a leader and understanding the importance of community. And, and I don't think I really fully appreciated it until, you know, I was in maybe the army or a little bit later where I realized that I started looking at leaders who had the ability. And I was grateful to sort of have that baseline of the need to create a caring community of people really had a great downstream impact on the group as a whole, because what does it do? It, it creates an expectation for everyone of, everybody's got to take care of everyone. It can't always be me. So I feel really fortunate that that I was raised that way. Yeah, I love that. Because when we think about success in business, you get an organization that's really too big for one person to do everything. And so the community has got to be a part of the equation and the step up, or you reach a point fairly soon when you top out on what you really can accomplish and what you can do unless the community is involved. So thank you for saying that and bringing in the lively Italian aspect you know, <laughs> to make that happen, you know? And I'm thinking about all around the table, the food, we're eating together, we're nurturing each other. I mean, it's a whole culture, if you will, of how, you know, to experience one another. It is. And that community of closeness also creates when the leader's not there, other folks being comfortable correcting other people, right? They're close enough to be able to say, you know, look, you, you got to straighten this out. This isn't working for everybody else. And, and so everybody's not relying on just the leader to share that. So I think that's really important. It's, again, the way I was raised. Excellent. So let me ask you, who are ideal clients for you, first of all? Who are you looking for? And how can they reach you to engage you for your consulting work? Well, thanks for asking. So, you know, an ideal clients for me are, are folks who realize that they 
have a lack of leadership and management competency, are looking to better understand what the gaps are, right? I mean, I, I do not do consulting work that's off the shelf. I look at every client, I do a full diagnostic, understand what are the what are the challenges and what are the priorities, also get that feedback. So ideal client is somebody looking for that. And also I do do a fair amount of executive coaching. So I tend to really focus, or I guess, particularly from executive coaching standpoint, I work with a lot of folks who are moving from a tactical role to a strategic role. So very often that's like a VP to a C-suite. In some large organizations, it's a you know a senior director to a VP where they're used to doing tactical work and they really need to learn to focus on the strategic thinking aspect of it. Uh, that's sort of my area of specialty and in any industry really. So, and the best way to reach me, thank you, thank you for asking, is uh, by email at pat at aboutfacedev. So aboutfacedev development, but shortened to DEV.com. So padded about facetab.com. Or my number, uh, business number is 484-408-0500. Excellent. And we'll have that information in the show notes as well. What are your final words of wisdom that you would like to leave for my community of corporate executives? I think it is to be honest and ask yourself, truly ask yourself, are you losing folks because you have a lack of leadership and management competency? To be really honest and look around and say, have, have we given our leaders the tools? Have we trained them and given them the tools to be successful? Or do they need competency development and leadership and management? Most often, the answer is yes, they do. And organizations really, to be successful, need to make a commitment to addressing the lack of leadership and management competency, if they have any hopes of, of truly being successful in, in meeting their objectives. Excellent. Thank you so much, Pat, for being with me today. I appreciate you joining me on The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Dr. Karen, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise. And so we'll close the show today with a particular Bible verse, which is from 1 Timothy the first chapter, and it's verse 18. And this is the Apostle Paul talking to his protege, Timothy, and Paul often used military references. And so he says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And what is the good warfare? It's the warfare that God is leading you to and that he's ordained. It's the place of operation that he's chosen for you in your workplace. And as you head into that journey with God, take his strategies with you. Use the gifts that he's given you so that you show up and you cause your team and your company and individuals to win. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here today, and I want to tell you a little bit about Spirit Wings Kids Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and it's an organization that provides profound services for orphans and for widows and families across the globe in many ways, and especially in the country of Uganda. So today I'm speaking with Donna Johnson, who is the founder of Spirit Wings Kids and also a board member. Donna, tell us about some example of the profound work that you're doing in Uganda. Oh, thank you, Dr. Karen. We were just there a few weeks ago and it's incredible. It's more than an orphanage. Uh, we have a soccer academy that keeps the boys off the street. We have a widow's program that matches them with children. And it's just a thriving network of really entrepreneurs. And uh, it's just been such a meaningful blessing to see the work that we're doing there. You know, Adana, what I love about what you said just now is you're really talking about their whole lives. You're creating families between the widows and the children. And you're also making sure they have recreation and something to do with the soccer academy. And you're looking at the job situation and the entrepreneurial aspect. And as a businesswoman yourself who's very successful, you're right in line with being able to make that difference. Thank you so much for the difference that you're making. And I'm inviting everyone who's watching and listening today to go to swkids.foundation.com 
and donate now. A hundred percent of everything you donate goes to those people who are in need and who are receiving those services. Thank you so much for donating. And Donna, thank you for this ministry. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.